0: Uh, my sister and I are both mad gardeners, we grew up uh, the children um, of mad gardeners, great family of gardeners, and you know there comes a time in your life when you just think we're going to do something on our own for a change.
1: Hello, hello and hello my gardening friends and welcome to episode 15 from Pot & Cloche Garden Podcasts. I'm Geoff Elphick, a gardener from Gloucestershire in England and in this episode it's a case of country mouse stays in the country before visiting the big city of Birmingham, well the NEC to be precise. It's a mixed episode, I'm at Malvern Autumn Show and then in Birmingham for Glee which is a huge trade show where manufacturers and suppliers launch new products and show off their wares to an international audience. As usual let me quickly quickly slip in a mention for my lovely sponsor, My Window Box who supply a wide range of period style and modern window boxes in aluminium and steel with drop-in or freestanding troughs to match. Take some time to have a look at their website, go to mywindowbox.com and bring the garden to your window. In my first port of call I chat to Lancashire-based bootmakers Poddy and Black. I'm with Vanessa from Poddy and Black. Hello, Vanessa.
0: Hello, how are you?
1: Very well, thank you. Very good. Your stand here caught my eye. Did it? I have, of course, heard of your business. (gasps) Who hasn't these days? Now, let's just uh, describe what you've got here for those who might not have heard of you. Who
0: might not have heard of us? Well, we make natural rubber gardening shoes and boots for women who are creative and independent and love to get out there in the great outdoors and are careful about how they dress and appear. We've got lots of gorgeous colours. We sell gorgeous socks and insoles. Very colourful, that's how you describe us.
1: It certainly is. Now, tell me of that moment when you were lying in your hot tub and the, the idea suddenly came, came to mind?
0: Um, I may not have been in my hot tub I won't lie but uh, the idea came to mind because I spent all my career in footwear and fashion uh, my sister and I are both mad gardeners we grew up uh, the children um, of mad gardeners great family of gardeners and you know there comes a time in your life when you just think we're going to do something on our own for a change and do you know what footwear, gardening put the two together Ta-da. Yeah,
1: so it was, it was in the blood, wasn't it? it? It was yeah. going to happen. It so, happen. Now, the name, Poddy and Black, where did that come from?
0: Well, our family name is Podmore. Uh, we Our nicknames at school, I was always known as Poddy, my sister was known as Poddy, my dad was known as Poddy, so that's a sort of family name. And then Black is our friend who was our designer friend who helped us pull it all together in a sort of technical design way, if you know what I mean, and that's her family name. And you know what? The whole thing started off as a WhatsApp group name. Because that's how we used to keep in touch with each other when we were starting the business and we used to have this little group called Poddy and Black. How long ago was that? Uh, about three years ago, three and a half years ago, something like that. Okay,
1: so you've moved quite quickly, haven't you? We
0: have, yeah.
1: Now, it's obviously it's a range of what slip-on yep. rubber yep. gardening yep. shoes yep, in, right. uh, in a wide array of colours Mm. um, almost fluorescent some of them aren't they Mm. Um, perhaps that's a little bit of an overstatement bright let's stick Mm. with bright Mm. like you today Mm. in your your orange top Um, what was the very first boot you produced and do you still produce that style
0: actually this one that I'm wearing today which is our classic it's become a bit of our iconic style if I might say our half cut it's called Uh, in the black with a little lime green trim there goes beautifully with a pair of skinny black jeans but it also functions perfectly in the garden what more do you need?
1: Well quite right Um, I've got my eye on the, uh, the, I quite like the green ones actually but I suppose if I was pushed I think I'd go for yours Mm. but I know you don't do them for us boys
0: we go up to a size nine, and do you know what, at Tatton, we sold a lot to men, and we get a lot of men coming on saying they wish we would go into bigger sizes. We're a tiny, tiny business, so you know that we've got to sort of take it one step at a time, but who knows, we may be able to fit you one of these days. Come back and see us next year, you never know.
1: Yeah, so how many options, how many SKUs do you have oh in, in the business? Oh my
0: gosh, eight, five, I've got um 13 colorways over seven sizes what's seven times 13 you do the math it's that many yeah, it's that many let's yeah. go for uh, a yeah. 91 yeah there you go your math is okay. better than mine
1: i'll check that when i get home <laughs> <laughs> now yeah. i found you here at the malvern show today where can people find you any other day
0: and any other day on our website's the best place to go so two places to go would be www.poddyandblack.com or our instagram Uh, and uh, facebook we're out there as poddy and black on facebook and instagram and we're active and fun and crazy out there all the time brilliant vanessa thanks for your time
1: it's absolutely fantastic thank you
0: nice to see you bye
1: After checking out the giant veg and wonderful displays of dahlias, the rabbit show and the poultry show, an interesting-looking display caught my eye. I'm with Robin at the Thomas Smith Trug Shop. Morning, Robin. Morning. Now, I was immediately drawn to your stand because uh, I've got a history in my family of uh, trug makers in Hurstman Zoo. So that's why it's of interest to me. And you're carrying on that tradition
2: to this very day. Yes, we are, yeah. I bought the company 36 years ago something like that um, to save it from closure and uh, combined it with another company i was making different type of truck with
1: i see so when when did the company very first come about
2: um 1829 (laughs) so it's (laughs) over 190 years old now yeah and i
1: mean obviously a lot of people will know trucks they're that sort of wooden Basket for want of a better word, um, made out of all natural materials. From what I can
2: see, what, what are they made of? Well, the traditional trucks made from sweet chestnut, uh, which we coppice ourselves, and we use that for the handles and rims. And the boards are made from cricket bat willow, which is the byproduct of the cricket bat industry. But we also do a, a more contemporary version, um, which, according to the Heritage Crafts Association, is now also traditional because it's been made for three generations and that is made from um, birch plywood. We've sold both to the Crown Estate at various occasions and we supply Prince Charles with both types of trucks at the moment.
1: I see, so if we were to break down a
2: truck into its individual pieces, what what, what do they comprise? We've got the the handle, which we do in one piece, and then there's the rim, which is sometimes done in uh, one piece, but most often done in two pieces, which we join together. That's made out of the chestnut, which we steam to bend it. Um, and then that's joined together to make the frame. And then there are either five or seven willow boards fixed into the truck, depending on size. Um, and the same with the, basically with the, the ply version, except that we use uh, birch ply from Finland, which is known as aircraft ply for the boards, and they used to make the... Mosquito aircraft out of that. So it's very strong and durable, either sort of truck. Uh,
1: And I see, I assume, no glue, but what held together is that copper
2: nails? Um, We use um, a steel, galvanised steel, to put the handle and rim together on the traditional truck. The rest of it is uh, cut copper tacks to put the boards in. And then we use copper clout nails to put the legs on. With the the Southdown trucks, we use mostly copper and brass fixings, Um, but we use galvanised nails in the bottom of the handle.
1: Now, Sussex seems to be a particular sort of hotbed for truck, truck, or certainly was, for trug making. Are there any other areas in the world or in the country
2: where where trugs are made? Well, apart from China, you mean. (laughs) Um, I guess I do these these days, yes. (laughs) Um, Well, in its heyday, uh, trug making was carried on from Kent right the way down to Somerset. Um, Perhaps they, down in the West Country, used different woods than we would have used in Sussex. Um, But it already came back to its original base at Hurstman Zoo and East Hopeley, in East Sussex, um, after the war. Because, uh, whereas before the war, trugs were used very extensively on farms for feeding animals, collecting vegetables, sowing grain, and all that sort of thing. After the war, mechanisation took over, and so the market became that much smaller. During both world wars, uh, truck making was a reserved occupation uh, because it was so important to the agricultural industry.
1: That's interesting. Now, you bought the company, as you say, over 30 years ago. What's gonna happen when you're no longer making trucks?
2: Good question at the moment. (laughs) There's only two other traditional truck makers and one making uh, the ply version. Um, the one making the ply version is same age as me basically, 70s And um, so when he finishes there's no one else to take over from him and the other two makers um, the three people who work in those businesses in my workshop, one's a sole trader on, working on his own the other are just two part time people working in another, so what I'm trying to do is to get um, a heritage centre set up so that we can um, continue to teach people I'm also taking on apprentices uh, I usually have about three apprentices now uh, first, second and third year apprentice
1: Now, you're obviously training them up, do they stay with you or do they end- then go up and s- go
2: on and set up as <laughs> in a competition? Um, unfortunately one of the apprentices just finished and had to go and look after his son full time so that's, um, you know, somebody lost after three years because it's a three year apprenticeship um, but we're hoping that um, you know, the apprentices will stay on and become craftsmen and then become master craftsmen after they've taught a couple of apprentices themselves. Yeah.
1: Now, if people should want to purchase one of your trucks but can't be here today, can they get you online or in any other way?
2: Yep. We supply online uh, anywhere in the world. Our website has eight different boxes for different parts of the UK, for example... Mainland UK, Scottish Islands, and the other islands, and so on. And then there's uh, four for Europe, um, one for USA and Canada, one for Australasia and Japan, and one for the rest of the world. So if anybody goes on there and finds a the truck they'd like, all of the prices include postage and packaging. It's actually courier, we don't send by post, but we send by courier now.
1: That's brilliant. And what is your website address? It's www.sussextrugs.com. That's easy enough to remember. Robin, thank you very much and uh, hope you have a great weekend here. Thank Thank you. You're welcome. One of the large covered halls was devoted to the brewing of cider, peri and real ale, where a large display of hops attracted my attention. I'm with Marsha, who's written a book called The Scratch of the Hop. Hi, Marsha. Hello
3: there. Hi.
1: I was immediately drawn to uh, this area of the show. You've got lots of hops out. I mean, I've already learnt several things. Yeah. So you've got this book, Scratch the Hop. Can you tell me a little bit more about it and, and what sort of part hops play in our lives?
3: Well, it's, um, it's a social history of um, hop growing in the West Midlands. Uh, we've got 27 growers in the West Midlands, more than, um, um, than in the South East. So Kent and Sussex and Surrey were known for hop growing, less so the West Midlands. So I wanted to do a social history of that, I was commissioned to do it, and um, I've interviewed lots of hop growers, lots of former hop pickers, um, um, anyone linked or associated with hops in any way, I've interviewed them, and the the scratch of hop is called that, because the hop is a prickly plant, and uh, spoke to several people who talked about getting scratched uh, by the hop but also the hop getting in their blood so it's a very evocative plant and uh, stays with them. I interviewed a 90 year old who um, hadn't picked, hadn't been near a hop in 30 years but she hops uh, the smell and the touch Um, it's hugely nostalgic for her so we called it the scratch of the hop.
1: I see. Because it was quite a tradition, wasn't it, to go hop picking at, at the right time of year?
3: Oh, my God. This time of year, I mean, um, they, it's estimated that around, uh, aside from local pickers, well, this is when there was a hand-picked harvest, um, it said around 40,000 people came into the three counties, Herefordshire, Worcestershire and Shropshire, to pick hops. Coming from places like the Black Country, South Wales, Liverpool, London, of course, the gypsy community, they were needed to pick the hop. So a village like Bishop's Froome sleepy place, maybe 500 people, hop picking time you'd have another 5,000 people coming in to pick hops and I interviewed one chap who described it as the wild west because it was you know, there was you know, all these pickers coming in, it was a microcosm of the human experience so you had you know, you had fights you had laughter, you had love, you had birth, you had marriages, you had death, you had licentiousness Um, everything, so it was a very colourful period
1: so where did these, this sudden influx of people, where did they live?
3: Well, um, aside from the local uh, pickers, of course, and we had our gypsy pickers, um, so they usually came from our industrial areas, so the black country, the West Midlands, South Wales, mining communities, um, because um, they could earn extra money. So in picking season is now, they would come along three, five weeks and pick. And then they would get, earn extra money. People used to take holidays to come here. And this money would... I mean, essentially, these people coming from these areas were working class and didn't have much money. Life was hard. So this hot, hot picking money would buy them winter fuel, winter coats, winter shoes, um, anything, really, to get them through the winter. So it was a really important income source for them. But it all changed with mechanisation.
1: So how long did that hop-picking season last for?
3: Um, depending on hop varieties, anything between three, five, six weeks. Your book, if anybody wants
1: to buy a copy, where can they get it?
3: They can go to Loggerston Press, www.logastonpress.co.uk.
1: Brilliant. Marcia, thanks very much for your time.
3: Thank you very much.
1: It only takes me just over an hour to get to the NEC in Birmingham. Glee is a huge trade show taking up several of the large halls. But despite its size, it didn't take me long to recognise a familiar face. I've just spotted Annabelle Padwick and she's from Life at Number 27. Now that might not mean anything to a few people, sadly Annabelle. Uh, So perhaps you could tell them a little bit about it.
4: Absolutely, hi. So yes, Life Norms 27 is a social enterprise that provides gardening and wellbeing therapy for children and adults that are struggling with low confidence, low self-esteem, mental health, or so anxiety, um, and just giving them access to nature and just showing actually how incredible nature is, as such a free therapeutic tool, but then also teaching them how to grow their own food. Um, and just all those skills that come from gardening that help build our confidence, build our resilience, test our patience. Um, but actually make us an all-round better, more confident person that's more equipped to be able to cope with things when they go wrong as well.
1: Now, that sounds great, but you must have very deep pockets to be able to pay for this.
4: No. I have very, very, very small pockets, which means it's very, very difficult. So we rely pretty much on amazing, incredible sponsors, um, donations that come through, um, and just, yeah, businesses that want to help support really because all our services predominantly are free we have a couple that are paid for but they're very low cost otherwise all our services which are annual allotment programs we do doing our school club we do one-to-ones um, all of it is free um, so yeah it's a constant juggling at trying to bring in the money enough to actually be able to one pay for my time but then also actually pay to transform the gardens because we have two big allotment therapy sites that bespoke built um, so trying to constantly maintain them adding benches adding hard landscaping but obviously it all costs money. So, yeah, it's one of those ones. <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, I'm very interested in that, use a gardening term, as I'll see, when did it all start and how did it come about?
4: Yeah, so originally Life at Number 27, I suppose, was a blog. And that's all it was supposed to be. It was about my own mental health journey and I couldn't find anyone that I could relate to at that point They were in their 20s that wasn't an experienced gardener, that didn't have a clue, um, and just hoped that I thought, if I write a blog about it, one, I might learn more about it and i can share my story but hopefully if other people are finding they're a female in their 20s they might find me and they can relate to somebody because i was getting so many like comments of like oh you don't know what you're doing you won't last five minutes or like you're too young like everyone does it is retired and stuff like that so i started this blog initially and then it sort of has grown and grown from there to a point where i was doing lots of talks at the shows and stuff and i thought I'm doing a lot of talking now, but there is, which was helping people because I was getting the message out there and sharing my story, which naturally helps other people open up. But I was like, we need more doing. There's too much talking as an industry. We need doing. I actually need to put our money and our, like if we've got the skills to do it. So I totally retrained as a therapist and as a counselor um, and then set up the organization, which quit my job overnight Moved, gave up my house so I could afford to do it, and just set up the organisation, and I've, it's gone from there now. So yeah, it's gone from 2015 from a blog to then two years ago it's turned into an organisation.
1: That's absolutely amazing. How can people help, and where can people find you?
4: Absolutely. So how can people help? Is, is there so many ways? If people want to donate, that would be incredible. If they want to do some sort of sponsored event, so they're already thinking, well, you're going to do like a marathon, or you'll do a half marathon, or you want to go for a long walk. Um, they can do that and help just raise money for us that way. Um, Also, they can just come along um, and volunteer their time. So they're close to either of our sites, which are both in Northampton or across Oxfordshire. They can actually come and volunteer their time and help us do the maintaining of the sites, supporting the clients. Um, Yeah, there's so many different ways. Or they can, yeah, listen to the magazine, alright, or buy the book, anything that helps bring in that funding or just literally spreading the message if they know somebody that thinks they might be struggling, just tell them about what we do and actually we might be able to help change their life. So that would be another way to help us and help them at the same time. That's
1: brilliant. And website?
4: It's lifeatnumber27.com and then we're also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.
1: Brilliant. Annabelle, thanks very much. Thank you. Well, look who I've just bumped into. It's Lee Connolly, the skinny gene gardener he's got his skinny jeans on always mate I have to now it doesn't matter what weather it is how's it been Lee last 18 months two years been pretty tough haven't they how have you been getting on um it's been a
5: rough one isn't it I mean everyone's had a rough one but uh you know it's a a bit of a cliche but gardening's got me through it mate like having a garden has uh you know never made me realize how much I should appreciate it a, a lot like last year when we were obviously in lockdown I uh, f people were living flats and have, didn't have a lot of space you know i felt for them and and i wouldn't have got outside if i didn't have one like me and my daughter and my, my wife that's
1: the way we got through it through it so uh yeah. yeah i think those of us with gardens were very lucky and uh those without were, were struggling weren't they i mean luckily we were allowed out in sort of parkland if, if we had any uh sort of nearby um but you've um You've not only got your podcast. You've been working with schools, haven't you? Tell us a little bit more about that. Those that don't know.
5: Yeah, it's an interesting one. Like, so obviously, I've been doing bits of kids gardening and, and school gardening for a while. That all started with a book, didn't it? It did. Well, you know, it started when I did that TV Blue Peter stuff. And then I uh, created a How to Get Kids Gardening book, which was a load of different ideas that I I'd do with my daughter. And I just wanted to get out there and give parents some ideas. And you know, gardening can be expensive, Joff. guy so. Um, So yeah, so with ideas that uh, are cheap and easy to make. And uh, so yeah, so that that sort of covered like families getting out and gardening. But the biggest thing for me is to get school kids gardening, especially primary school children, because we've got a generation of adults that don't know much about gardening. And the best way to get them educated is get the kids knowing about it. So um, just before lockdown happened last year, I went on a school tour around the country and we got 10,000 kids gardening and a campaign. It was amazing. And I stood on the back of a pickup truck looking like Jesus, throwing seeds into kids' eyes. And it was great. It was great fun. And uh, But I was, I was, we did 20 schools in one week and we were all over the country. And I was there for like 20, 20 minutes, half hour. And the kids loved it. And they all got to sow seeds and grow, grow them on. Um, but it was part of a campaign which I realised that I'd become a, a, a part of the problem with, with kids' gardening and school gardening because I was just showing up, getting the kids G'd up for it, and then leaving. And, you know, the teachers just had no idea what, what they were growing. And, you know, I was walking around some of the schools and saw other campaigns sitting there that were just dying, just uh, little cups of soil. So obviously then we went into lockdown and that gave me a bit of an opportunity to think, well, how can I get uh, schools gardening and support teachers? So that's where the School Gun Success Plan come along. And uh, we provide each class with a raised bed, seeds, compost, uh, tools, all the equipment. um, And then they get free lessons a month uh, based around the curriculum. Uh, Video lessons of, of my lovely face on the screen for them. Um but the biggest thing out of all, like all that is great, like the equipment, the lessons are good um, they help the teachers, but we also provide teacher support so for a whole year of that school success plan, the teachers get to contact us whenever they want. We've got a little team that uh, answers any questions, and uh, yeah, we make full success of that that garden experience for the kids and um, yeah, for me, that's the biggest thing that
1: supporting the teachers uh, that sounds amazing, but of course. I mean, I've just been speaking to Annabelle Padwick, life at number 27. Yeah. Now, great idea. costs money, doesn't it? She's sorted that out. How do you pay for it? Not out of your own pockets, I assume. No, it's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Like for,
5: for our kit, it's 500 quid for a class. And, you know, if considering that kit lasts you a whole um, like 10, 15 years, like all the equipment, one of the things I've realised, Joff, is that over the last eight years of gardening, I've tried a different... Um, a whole range of tools as i'm sure you have as well and so you get to realize what works and what doesn't work and all the equipment is tried tested over the last eight years so i know it's going to last but yeah it's 500 quid for that package and you know i tried to bring it down as much as possible because i know schools haven't got loads of money Um, and if schools want to buy it then they can go into a website and get it but we're working with organizations and uh, brands as well to get it out there because like i say like me being on that pickup truck is great for the ego but we can do more with these campaigns, and brands want to get schools involved. And through this school success plan, we can, um, we can make that happen. So, uh... so
1: as you drive off into the sunset on your pickup, you know, guns blazing, uh, what happens then? I mean, do this, is there any sort of backup if the schools need help? Yeah, that's what the teacher support is. So we support them for a year. Uh, and
5: after that year, then there there is a uh, I think it was about sixty quid a year after that, and for that, they get uh, the more compost more seeds just to keep them going and continue that support for the teachers um, but that 's what I realized that the biggest thing for me is when I went on that school tour was that the teachers that are, are really energetic and, and love gardening and get the kids going and keep that school gardening uh, program going are great like they really do keep school gardening um, going at schools but actually it was the teachers that were a bit like a bit standoffish like a bit like who's this geezer can't be bothered to do gardening those were the ones that inspired me the most because I was like you are the teachers that I want to support you're the ones that sit there and go I haven't got time to like do a lesson planned on gardening I don't even know much about gardening myself how can I teach a bunch of um, six-year-olds how to do that they're the ones I want to support they're the ones that I want to show say this is the plan this is what you've got to do here's the equipment and if you want to call, give us a call and we ha- we'll help you out. That's the biggest thing for me.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, Lee, I've loved watching your progress over the last sort of five years. You know, it's been absolutely amazing. Uh, keep on, keep on trucking, <laughs> and uh, wish you best luck. Great show we're at today. And uh, anything spot- caught your eye yet? Um, There's a few little bits. There's some raised beds bits that I'm quite interested about. Um, I've just spoken to Neil from Veggie Pod, which I think you know about. Yeah, well Veggie Pod. Actually,
5: veg, funny enough, Veggie Pod are one of the suppliers for our kits. So this, each class go gets one of the Veggie Pods. So because uh, they're they're a great product, Geoff. Uh, you know they are amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, I'm still looking around, seeing what's about. It's interesting to see what's new and and, and what's uh, what's not so new.
1: <laughs> the, the one thing that's caught my eye. Uh, I don't know if you've seen It's somebody selling um, mushrooms growing kits and i know it's not new but it looks absolutely fascinating do you know what? i can't get near the stand really? <laughs> people are just flocking around it yeah yeah do you know you know what it is with that
5: sort of thing like it's, it's not new but it's, it's coming it's when it becomes fashionable and that's that's the interesting part like we, we're in this industry so we know it's been about for ages but it's when like people like my wife's not into gardening but as soon as she starts talking about that sort of thing i think oh now this sort of thing is coming into fashion. So it's interesting, yeah. that sort of thing.
1: And of course, they're not just growing your uh, regular uh, mushroom. They're growing all sorts of interesting fungi. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to try and catch them when they're a bit
5: quieter. We probably would had, have had this conversation about a couple of years ago about microgreens. Do you know what I mean? Like, no yeah. one was talking about them before, Joff, And now, you know, everyone's talking about it. So yeah. Absolutely. Brilliant.
1: Lee, thanks very much. Cheers, mate. Nice. So I've managed at last to catch up with Elliot Webb uh, it's been so busy Elliot around your, your stand here now I'll let you tell everybody uh, what, what you're doing
6: yeah yeah so we're urban Farm it and uh, we're really focused on enabling regular people who live in city environments to have a flavor of growing their own food you know no matter what sort of space or resources they've got uh, so we're focused a lot on kind of indoor balcony that sort of level um, our flagship product, the mushroom growing kit We've got four different varieties available currently. So we've selected different types of mushrooms that, from different parts of the world so they work in different conditions. You know, if you have a really warm home, you might take a pink oyster, uh, which is a Southeast Asian variety. Or if you have a really chilly home, you might choose a blue. Uh, so you can marry up everything you know, and your decision to, to the environment that you're in. As well as that, if somebody wanted to have a more kind of permaculture, natural growing method, we've got log growing kits. Uh, you know, the way I like to think of it is that the mushroom growing kit Um, The main one is replicating nature, and the log kit is literally doing nature. You know, you are introducing um, an organism to the wood and then just letting it do its thing. Uh, As well as that, what we've started doing very recently is wholesale distribution of mushroom spawn. So as of the 21st, if it's cultivated, you can get it from us, basically. Uh, I think there's gonna be about 86 different varieties, uh, species, uh, and that amounts to about 165 different products for depending on what use you want. So that's really exciting one for the future. Um, as well as that, we've got um, an all-purpose natural plant food, which is a seaweed base. You know, we were tired of, of not having access to a nice, diverse, um, well-ranged plant food that wasn't man-made. So we thought, right, we'll, we'll just do it ourselves. How about that? And then uh, what we've got over here, which is probably the thing that's drawing all of the attention and, and stopping you from getting in here, is, uh, is our sort of advanced prototype aquaponics tank, um, my background's in aquaculture so I worked in the uh, salmon industry in Scotland and also the barramundi industry in um, Australia and I just wanted to kind of apply um, my skill set from that into this whole idea of urban farming and what's great about this is that it, it, for me or I believe it does anyway it demystifies aquaponics a little bit for people you know a, a lot of people you speak to haven't even heard of it let alone have a grip of it um, so what we're trying to do is create a really resilient um, product that people can get a flavor of in their own home uh, there's been massive uplift in hydroponics with the guys like click and grow things like that and we're trying to bring in the first uh, uk-based aquaponics version of that
1: yeah well let's sort of work back through what you've just been saying yeah. very quickly just to sort of describe what we've got now the aquaponics um, I'll, talk, I'll talk basic, you add the details. <laughs> okay, I'll <laughs> it, try. It, it's, it's, it's an aquarium with a goldfish in it, yeah. um, but the plants are set, so their roots are just sort of sitting yeah, that's in the right, water. Yep, yep. Where do the plants get the nutrients
6: from? Yeah, so um, this, you know, so hydroponics, soilless growth. Within hydroponics, we add man-made nutrient to the to the water and the plants take just what they need. We're using that physics... Um, and chemistry but applying it uh, to the aquaponics tank except instead of adding nutrients we feed the fish and then what we're doing is kick-starting the nitrogen cycle which is a natural process happens in soil and water all over the world Um, you know the fish produce ammonia and by mixing with beneficial bacteria eventually we have nitrates plant food and so you feed the fish Uh, fish feed the plants plants feed you it's a beautiful beautiful symbiosis
1: yeah it it looks it looks absolutely fascinating and and look you know you'd have it in any anybody would have it in their home wouldn't they yeah
6: that's that's what we're trying to achieve but again it's an aesthetic thing (laughs)
1: let's have a look at these growing kits Uh, just describe
6: what they look like and and how they work what the growing medium is yeah sure so um, you know in line with, with with our brand we try and do everything uh, top quality as much possible local so we've got some kentish chopped straw uh, about five miles away from our our site is where we source that local farmer and essentially what we've got is a special grow bag which is the same method that most uh, commercial mushroom farmers will use for this type of alignicolus, wood loving mushroom um, and within that grow bag, there's the substrate, the mycelium, which is the mushroom. The main part of the mushroom organism will spread through that mycelium, uh, through that uh, substrate. It will dissolve it. It will save up nutrients, and then you provide an environmental trigger, which is what makes it actually produce the mushroom that we eat and enjoy. And in the case of these mushrooms, it's often fresh air and light. So our our mushroom kit. Um, allows you to manipulate the conditions um, to achieve all of those different environmental stimulants. So for the first couple of weeks, the box is closed. That's incubation, that's mimicking when the mushroom in nature is burrowing through a log. It's dark, it's humid, there's low oxygen. Then after that incubation phase, you open up the box and all of a sudden there's light, there's air, there's a slight drop in temperature, which is exactly what happens when the organism gets to the edge of a log. It senses those, it triggers, and it fruits talking of logs
1: you've yeah. got, uh, got a log at the end here that's it um i've seen similar before where you can sort of uh put in little pegs can't that's you that's exactly it yeah
6: yeah that's exactly it so so the mushroom kit i was talking about before i said the word mimics and because that's what you're doing you're mimicking nature very closely but um you know as i touched on earlier the log growing kit you are literally doing what nature does you're just accelerating it um in the forest a tree will fall um that makes it, mayb- it make a sound <laughs> i don't know you'll have to be you have to go there and tell me won't you yeah um But, well, actually, I'll tell you what. I I actually believe that it does. And do you want to know why? Because (laughs) Because shiitake mushrooms have got an extremely interesting, um, uh, what's the word, evolutionary skill, which is that they can sense vibrations in the ground whilst they're inside a log. That vibration is one of these environmental triggers. So tree falls in the forest, puts a vibration through the log. That is a trigger for them to fruit because that is obviously the opportune moment at which to release your spores. Those spores float through the air, land on the freshly landed log, and they infiltrate and start a new life cycle. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're taking our dowels, our short oak um, wooden dowels, which have the mushroom mycelium on it, and we're just introducing it in much greater numbers than than what would happen if a single spore landed. Yeah, yeah. Um, How long have you been going? Uh, We started trading March 2020, so we're a brand new business. But, um, you know, we're really... We've we've tapped into a great need. There's um, the younger generation are, sort I'm talking sort of 15 to 30 are just starting to you know really wake up a, a, a about the, their food source and things like that and get get back into their gardening. Um, but you know like I say, we've realised that most of these most of this demographic who are interested don't currently have the right options available to them to really maximise their food growing. You know if you asked um, a, a total novice, how would you go about growing? Um, vegetables in your flat in london they they wouldn't have any ideas other than a pot so what we're trying to do is give engaging quick producing uh, new look new style um, options to them so that we can get them on that food growing journey
1: that's interesting because it was that sort of demographic that has really adopted house plants and it's interesting they'll be sort of moving on to what is quite an attractive uh, you know, <laughs> thing to grow in your house, well, you know, some, some oyster mushrooms. Well, I think
6: if you were spending the same sort of money as what you spend on a house plant, it would be an awful investment because they, they fruit harvest and are done within, a, within about True. a week, so. True.
1: I always think about uh, bunches of flowers, you know, 25 quid for a bunch of flowers and you chuck them away in a week, so, Beautiful, you know, look a bit
6: like that. But, so, where can people find you? Uh, online is, is where we are mainly you know because we're a business that started during covid we had to totally change the format of our business strategy and um, we went totally e-commerce for the last year we also trade locally in markets you can find us every month at chiswick flower market in london and uh, now that we have started to make a bit of an impression you might find us at more events like this yeah yeah it, and
1: if people can actually get to
6: your store yeah yeah that's it. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll put out climbing ropes yeah so uh, your, your web address Yeah, so it's www.urban-farm-it.com and the Instagram is urban.farm.it. We look out for you there, Elliot. Thanks very
1: much. Really fascinating. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you very much. Linda Petrons is from Green Fingers, an absolutely amazing charity that builds exceptional gardens in hospices for children with life limiting illnesses. I last spoke to her in episode 12 and I'd seen her on the way in, but she was surrounded by a large group who were being shown just what a huge difference Green Fingers can do for these very poorly children and their families. I picked my moment. So I've tracked down Linda Petron's Linda. Good morning.
7: Good morning, Geoff. It's so lovely to see you. Yeah,
1: I knew you were here, and in fact, I think I tagged you on a post last night on Instagram. I don't know if you saw it. Just to say, I'd, I'd be on my way. Um, so it's been a tough couple of years. How's it been for you?
7: It's been a real challenge, actually, a real, real challenge. Yeah, last year was a great year. We we did really well. We had a couple of really unexpected donations, which was very, you know, very helpful. Um, but we have a, a massive partnership with a hotel uh, group who have obviously been really hard hit by uh, COVID. The hospitality industry as a whole has, so we've lost a big chunk of our income through that. Um, so this year hasn't been quite as good as last year, but um, but the demand for gardens in children's hospices has grown. Um, you know, the hospices are using their gardens in a way that they never expected to be using them. So um, our work continues, but we're you know we we're just hoping that. That, you know, our support will carry on sort of throughout the, the next year or two um, to enable us to do all those gardens that are on our, currently on our waiting list.
1: Now you've had some help over the last sort of 18 months or so from sort of well-known garden designers and so on, haven't you?
7: We have. We've, we're working really closely at the moment with Anne-Marie Powell, who is amazing. She's designed a master plan for the Nook, which is a, a children's hospice in East Anglia. Um, so within that master plan she's creating one garden for Green Fingers um, but it's a very, you know, the, the whole, the entire project is a very long term project uh, will probably be about a five year project um, and the gardens will develop as and when the hospice it, the hospice and Green Fingers raise the money for it and we can't build those gardens without that money so it's really important that people keep giving us you know, what they can to help and then Tom Hoblin Tom has been amazing, he's designed a a fabulous woodland garden in um, Haven House in Essex, and that's currently being built, and we're looking forward to seeing that finished, hopefully in the next month or so. So that's a a really gorgeous woodland haven with lots of boardwalks that take you to different places uh, within, within the garden scheme. And which will be used for various, for various things, for children's activities, for um, parents to sit and have a quiet time, a quiet moment perhaps, away from the pressures of what's going on inside the hospice um, and we're working with Victoria Wade as well, so we've got a lovely project in South Wales that Victoria designed and that's a, a fabulous garden um, again it's a woodland it's a it's trans, completely transforming a blank space into a vibrant woodland that's going to be very very um, eco-friendly and it will really get the children out there and encourage them to be close to nature and all the benefits that that brings
1: now such was the community and the generosity and the enthusiasm of gardeners during this lockdown period a book came about didn't it
7: yes Anne-Marie uh, created a book My Real Garden uh, so throughout lockdown she took to Instagram to share what uh, her exploits what she was doing in her garden to transform that into a lovely space
1: i must admit i was one of her followers and watched watched it all
2: yes
7: me too yeah every sunday afternoon i was there and still am actually sunday lunchtime i'm still there but she's created this amazing community of garden lovers um, who now know about green fingers all those followers that that she's she's managed to attract on instagram are now following Greenfingers, and, and some of them are doing some really great stuff for us. So yeah, we're hugely thankful, really grateful to Anne-Marie for that.
1: But a lot of people contributed towards this book, didn't they?
7: They did. It was stories of real people in their gardens and what their gardens mean to them. So it, was, it wasn't a story about fancy garden designers creating fancy gardens. It was about real people and their real, real gardens. So it could be you know anything from uh, a a flower bed that's been developed or you know a quiet space or, or whatever whatever you know we all have in our garden so yeah it was a, a real a real gardening book a garden book about real people which was great yeah,
1: i think that book was a real success uh, during lockdown um well look good luck with the future i hope things go from better to better um i know it's been a tough year or so but uh I can see that uh, you know there's been a lot of interest I came past earlier and I, I couldn't talk to you you were swamped here so uh, good luck with it all yeah,
7: thanks so much Joff. and it's great to have your support you're just brilliant it's lovely to work with
1: you Linda thanks for your time and everything you do at Green Fingers that's it everyone many thanks for listening if you want to get in touch go to my website joffelfick.co.uk or find me on Instagram under the same name in the meantime may your secateurs be well honed Beds, well mulched and your large order of tulips actually planted in the ground and not forgotten about at the back of the shed. We've all been there. I'll see you next time.